Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. For more information on future classes, seminars, and more podcasts, please visit our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Beth Mulcahy Esquire is the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to our virtual fall HOA Academy. We're so happy to be in partnership with the neighborhood services from all over Arizona. Specifically, we're working together with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Scottsdale, Surprise, Tempe, and together, all of us have worked together to organize the special virtual HOA and condo academy. And today's our second class in our series of six classes, which are going to extend through June 2021. And I'm excited to announce that we're already starting to plan the second half of 2021, our monthly classes uh, in conjunction with these different HOA academies of these different cities. So stay tuned. We'll be announcing those hopefully in the next few months, uh, and you'll hear about it probably through these classes. So today we're gonna be discussing, like I said, the top 10 most common legal problems in HOAs and condos and some strategies to solve those problems for good. Okay, for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Beth Mulcahy and I'm an attorney that represents over a thousand community associations, planned communities and condominiums um, in Arizona. I have enjoyed representing associations for the past 24 years. Can't believe it's been that long. Um, Time really goes by fast. Uh, My firm currently represents uh, all different types of associations, whether they're planned communities or condominiums, HOAs, uh, throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my uh, board where I live, and I have for many years. So I have some experience uh, as an attorney for associations, but I also have experience as um, a board member. And in addition to that, I also had a little stint there for about a year and a half where I was a disgruntled owner in my association, not happy with my board um, when I was no longer on the board. So I think I bring a unique perspective to these classes here today. And our role is to you know, provide you with free, free information, answer your questions to make sure that all of you are running associations that are in compliance with the law. And also for those of you who are board members, our goal is to make sure that you have a hassle-free time on the board. And the one way to do that is to make sure that you handle difficult problems in a proactive and preventative manner. Um, And so we're going to start out now by asking a question of all of you. So for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, um, your screen will show that we have a poll question for you. What best describes your role in your association? Are you a board member, a homeowner, a manager, or other? Okay, we have our poll results in. So 65% of the individuals that are here today are board members, 26% are interested homeowners, 2% are community managers, and 7% are other. So we have a really great representation of uh, the many different groups that are in associations here today. So seems like we're a little bit heavier on the board members, which is pretty typical for these classes because a lot of boards want to um, get up to speed on their responsibilities. And let's face it, a lot of boards have problems, right? That's what keeps me in business. So we're here to help you today by answering those most common problems. 
Okay, let's first start out with some uh, housekeeping. So as you may know, the Arizona legislature is in session right now. And when they're in session, we need to keep an eye on them. And as you may remember, last year in 2020, we had no new legislation pertaining to HOAs and condominiums. Uh, but we did have a number of bills introduced, and obviously the pandemic played a role in, in not having any HOA or condo bills passed. Um, so we had a cheat sheet that we prepared at the end of 2021, which we're going to be sharing with you at the end of 2020, excuse me, um, that we're going to be sharing with you right now on both platforms, Zoom and Facebook Live. Um, this summary is just a, a summary of the bills that were introduced last year, and it really gives you a sprinkling of where we're going in 2020. 21 with the bills. We also have a 2021 summary of pending Arizona legislation. These are the bills that have been introduced this legislative session in 2021. And so obviously these haven't been passed by um, either House and haven't been signed by our governor. But these are the bills that we're keeping our eye on this year. And of course, we're, we're certain that the pandemic is going to be shaping the 2021 legislative session. No question about that. The three main things that we're seeing the theme for uh, our legislature in 2021 in Arizona, the theme this year is going to be focusing on pandemic, politics, elections, and the budget. Um, we haven't seen as many HOA bills and condo bills this year in 2021 as we saw in 2020 that were introduced. So just a quick overview, as I said, we're going to be sharing in both platforms the 2021 pending bills so that you can get a, you know, an idea of where our legislature thinks they're going this year. Um, just to give you a quick you know, two-second summary of some of the bills that we're looking at, we're seeing bills on flags, including uh, requiring associations to allow the flags of first responders. Obviously, that's pandemic-related. Um, allowing attorney's fees and garnishments, um, short-term rentals, always a hot topic for associations. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that today. Um, amending CCNRs, changing the number of uh, the requisite percentage that you need to amend your CCNRs, trying to make it a uniform one um, of 50%, of more than 50% is a bill that's floating around right now. Other things that we were seeing, signs pertaining to political elections, um, you know, so again, like I said, the three themes for this year that we're keeping track of and we're noticing the bills pertaining to are pandemic, politics, elections, budgets, and short-term rentals. Um, just a reminder, on our website, every week when the legislature is in session, we post a new summary of what's happening in the legislature that week. Then um, we summarize the bills, what their status is, how quickly they're moving, the ones that we think may pass this year. So be sure to check out our website at mulcahylawfirm.com to get a copy of our weekly legislative update. Okay, let's talk a little bit about our COVID update in Arizona. I look back on you know, the past year and I think about where we were February 16th, 2020 and where we are now in February 16th, 2021. A lot's happened in Arizona and around our country and our world with the pandemic. Never in a million years did I think I would be teaching all of my classes now virtually and never in a million years did I think I'd be giving a update on COVID-19 in our you know, virtual classes. But here we go. Um, things are going better in Arizona. I think we can all agree that, you know, the governor has introduced some uh, new programs with the Department of Economic Security in Arizona. 
for a new emergency rental assistance program and counties throughout Arizona are also receiving funds directly from the federal government and are launching their own program that's different from the Department of Economic Security program. So what does this mean for associations? Um, if there's rental assistance that's propping up our economy right now, um, it's very likely that any rental properties are paying their rent to owners, landlords, and an association, and, and that enables the owner landlords to pay their mortgage or deed of trust and also pay their HOA and condo dues. Um, and so some things to think about, but we're noticing some trends, some interesting trends in COVID are that owners are paying their assessments. You know, we have been thinking about you know, is the shoe going to drop? Are we going to see our economy start to tank? You know, with all the federal assistance programs and state assistance programs right now, we really don't see that happening during this quarter. And I think, again, the additional unemployment benefits, all of this is contributing to what should be a very low delinquency rate for your associations, meaning that owners should be paying their assessments. If you are having problems with owners paying assessments in your associations, Make sure that you're taking timely action um, because really you shouldn't be right now. We're seeing, a, you know, there are not that many owners that are delinquent. You should be sending them letters, leaning their property and turning them over to your legal counsel. And the association's legal counsel should be able to collect all the amounts that are due. Okay, next thing, we're number five now in the United States in terms of the number of new COVID cases. That's significantly better than being number one several weeks ago. We marked our milestone in Arizona last week with over 1.2 million COVID-19 vaccinations. And as of yesterday, Monday, February 15th, Maricopa County has now expanded the vaccine eligibility to adults 65 and older at all vaccine locations. Recently, there were 1,338 new cases and zero new deaths reported as of yesterday, uh, Monday, February 15th. There have now been 798,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and 14,000 coronavirus-related deaths reported in Arizona. So that's our COVID update. Um, you know, we'll continue to uh, go on Facebook Live and, and talk about the COVID pandemic and how it's affecting associations in our classes, likely for the rest of 2021. If anything really urgent or important happens, just know that we'll be talking about it on our Facebook page and we'll have a Facebook Live if there are a lot of questions that need clarification. So just know that we're there for you and we're ready to answer questions as things change during this pandemic. Okay, last thing I wanna mention before we get into uh, the topic are, are two short things. Just remember that um, we have two or one great cheat sheet, actually two great cheat sheets on um, pandemic related topics. One is called Associations and COVID-19, a plan for reopening HOA and condo uh, common areas. And that gives all kinds of great information, like what types of signs you should have posted, um, what are CDC guidelines that your association should be following. And we're updating that on a monthly basis. Um, also, we have a wonderful cheat sheet on virtual meetings. I think we're gonna be sharing that with you a little later in the presentation. Remember that all associations should be having a virtual meeting right now and not meeting in person due to the pandemic. And last but not least, uh, how about Arizona Proposition 207, the Mar Marijuana Legalization Initiative. The last seminar that we had, the first uh, seminar uh, in our virtual seminar series for neighborhood services, we did kind of a deep dive on how Prop 207 may affect associations. So we're gonna be sharing with you uh, on both platforms today, 
some information that we wrote a blog on this topic on how the legalization of marijuana in Arizona may affect associations. Uh, one thing to think about is associations may want to pass a rule regarding smoking marijuana on common areas. Um, and condo associations may start to see issues with secondhand marijuana smoke. Um, just know that if you need help on those, you're welcome to reach out to our firm um, and we can provide you with additional information to help your association. And we have already started to see problems with that being presented to our firm. So we think that could be something that all associations should keep an eye on and be ready to address. Okay, let's talk about what are our top 10 most common legal problems in HOAs and condos. We spent a lot of time last week thinking about what are the most common problems that we see? What are some serious problems that we'd like to help associations avoid? And we actually spent about six hours collectively brainstorming to come up with the best possible class for you today. So in the next 43 minutes, we're going to be talking about 10 things your board needs to know, 10, thing that, 10 things that owners need to know to help prevent problems in your association. Because let's face it, preventative legal is so much smarter than um, you know, handling problems when they become a five alarm fire. So just having you be here today, listening to this presentation is awesome because you're gonna have a baseline knowledge of what problems might currently be on your radar or maybe could come onto your radar in the near future. And we're gonna give you the tools to solve, solve them so that when it happens, you're gonna have a lot less stress and you're gonna handle it the right way. So let's first start out with the first problem that our firm sees. Um, boards wanting to conduct in-person meetings right now during the pandemic, uh, which is a bad idea. Uh, boards not following the open meeting law and boards using email to conduct association business. So problem number one, board meetings. What are the typical problems that we see? Okay, so we have some great cheat sheets on this topic. Um, one's called community association board meetings. Another one is tips for conducting virtual board meetings in the pandemic. And my team is gonna be sharing those in both platforms on Zoom and on Facebook Live right now. Now, don't forget at the end of this presentation, we're also gonna give you a summary um, which includes all of the links to these presentations. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Okay, so let's start out first with virtual meetings. All boards should be having virtual board meetings and virtual annual meetings during this pandemic time. It's very likely that throughout the rest of 2021, your boards will need to continue using Zoom or whatever online virtual platform that you're using to conduct your association business. So just expect that that is going to be our future for the rest of 2021, likely. Make sure you're referencing our cheat sheets to help you get through this process. Um, you know, and, and there's kind of some fine tuning that has to be done based upon Arizona law and the changes that we've had to make to take the meetings virtual. So let's just do a quick summary of, okay, what's the 411 that you need to know to not have any problems on the Arizona open meeting law? First, anytime a quorum of your board is meeting to discuss association business, you must follow the Arizona open meeting law. Arizona has a special meeting open meeting law for HOAs and condos, and it's different than the open meeting law that school boards or that city council members have to follow. We have our own special law. And basically, like I said, anytime a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, even if you're not taking a vote, even if you're just discussing things, you must follow the Arizona open meeting law. 
Um, and how do you do that? You have to provide 48 hours notice to your membership by posting notice on your common areas or really any other reasonable means. And so kind of the interesting thing about the statute in Arizona for open meetings for HOAs and condos is that they don't really give us a lot of direction about how we should post that 48 hours notice. I mean, of course, they say post it on the common areas, but not every association has a bulletin board or a place where they can post signs. So what do most associations do? So most associations are placing the notice on their website. Uh, maybe they're sending out an email to all the membership with the, the date and the time for the meeting. Remember that during these virtual meeting times, you have to be really prepared for your regular board meetings and your annual meetings. And you have to provide in the notice um, that the meeting's gonna be held strictly via teleconferencing. And then you should also provide instructions on options on how to attend the video conference or how to attend a conference call if you're having your meetings by conference call. You know, and remember and remind people that, you know, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are unable to meet in person right now. Um, and we're meeting on this virtual platform. Many of our associations are using Zoom to conduct their meetings. Remember a common thing that I hear about board members saying that owners are having difficulty grasping the Zoom um, and embracing it. Remember that there are a number of different ways to join a Zoom, a Zoom teleconference. You can use the direct link, which is easy. Many people use their smartphone, their iPad, their computers to do that. Or you can also call into a Zoom teleconference and you can just listen via a landline. So really, if somebody uses a phone, they should be able to use uh, Zoom. They don't need a smartphone. They can just call in to the, the number on their home line and listen in on the meeting. So if you if I have any associations that haven't yet transitioned to using an online platform, please reach out to our firm. We're here to help you. We've done a lot of trainings for different boards and boot camps for different boards on how to conduct a successful virtual meeting. And we really... I had some boards that just were totally opposed to doing it. But once they did one Zoom meeting, they realized, hey, this is great. And we're going to be using this even after the pandemic. Okay, so when we're in our regular board meeting and we're having it by a teleconference, one question that's coming up is when can members talk? So, you know, a lot of boards have what we call an open forum at the beginning of the meeting. And um, that's a great idea, even if you're having a teleconference. So at the beginning of your meeting, start out the meeting have a homeowner forum and unmute the owners and let them make any statements that they want to make. Um, I would place a time restriction on it because we want to make sure that we're having an efficient meeting and we don't want to spend, you know, an hour doing that. But I'd say like 10 minutes would be sufficient and give everybody maybe a minute or two that wants to talk an opportunity to talk. Um, there are other times during the meeting when members are allowed to talk to. And when you're having a virtual meeting, you really kind of have to think this through before you go on the virtual meeting. Now, if you only have a few people attending your virtual meeting, it's really not that big of a deal because you, you know, traditionally they can just unmute themselves and ask a question during the meeting and participate that way. But when you have a large number of people, and really I consider anything over 12 people on a Zoom call, a time where you really have to have a plan, what you should do is use the homeowner forum, like I said at the beginning of the meeting, but then the board members are required under the law to let owners talk before the board takes formal action on something. And so what does that mean? That means that if your board is making a motion in a second and you're about ready to vote on something, if an owner wants to contribute during that time, 
you have to allow that owner to contribute. So what's a good way to do that? Different boards are handling it differently. Some boards are saying you can comment now in the chat section or the comment section um, on Zoom. If you're a homeowner and you want us to hear the comment before we take formal action, other boards are opening up the Zoom call and unmuting owners and letting them contribute. You're just going to have to figure out what's best for you. The other thing is maybe at the beginning, the call good protocol and etiquette would be for the board president or the manager to discuss Zoom etiquette. So make sure that people have um, themselves on mute uh, when it's not the appropriate time for them to talk. I have been on so many funny Zoom calls where we're having difficulty getting an owner or a board member to mute themselves and we're hearing all kinds of crazy background noise. And, you know, keep that in mind um, that if you announce that protocol at the beginning, you know, and, and sometimes the host can also help the person by automatically muting them if they're unable to do that, them, do that themselves. Okay, let's talk a little bit about executive sessions. The Arizona Open Meeting Law for HOAs and condos has a special carved out exemption where the board can go into what we call executive session, which is just the board. And the typical t- subjects that you have are um, that you discuss during executive session, in my experience, are advice from your attorney delinquencies, violations, and if you're having problems with an employee or a vendor, discussion of those problems. Um, Before you go into executive session, don't forget that you, uh, well, first you have to notice your executive session. So most boards have their executive session on the tail end of their regular board meeting. And so when you send out your regular board meeting notice, you should also indicate that you're having an executive session immediately following the regular board meeting. So you have to notice the executive session in addition to the regular board meeting. Um, And you also have to indicate what you're going to be discussing, what section under the statute you're going to be discussing in executive session. Um, That's the law. In addition, if you're just having an executive session and you're not having a board meeting in conjunction with that, you'll want to make sure that you're noticing that executive session meeting the same way that you'd be noticing a regular board meeting. Um, And even though the owners can't attend, you can just let them know that we won't be providing the Zoom link or the dial-in teleconference information because it's just an executive session for the board. But you still do need to notice that. That's a tip that um, I think a lot of boards don't know. Executive sessions need to be noticed and you also need to provide the section in state law And if you go back and look up at state law, Arizona Revised Statutes 33-1804 and the Condominium Act 33-1248, it lists the exact language that you have to have before you go into executive session. If you need any help, uh, just remember, you can always reach out to our firm um, at mulcahylawfirm.com. And we're happy to provide you with any information that you may need to properly notice your meetings. Okay, don't forget when you're having your virtual meetings, you still have to provide your agenda to everyone who attends. So there's a couple ways you can do that. Under Arizona law, this is a requirement. So you can uh, place the agenda on your webpage when you do your notice. You can post it in your common areas. You can send out the agenda when you send out an email announcing the meeting. Um, All of those are are great ways to to provide your agenda to your members. Also, you can do a screen share during the actual Zoom conference and post the agenda briefly at the beginning of the Zoom call. Don't forget, just a practice pointer, you have to take minutes um, during your regular board meeting and your executive session board meeting. Most Zoom calls are being recorded. And so remember that on the Zoom platform, every platform is different, but on the Zoom platform, If you choose to record the meeting, 
you have to actively, after the meeting, save it onto your server or onto your computer. Otherwise, Zoom only keeps that um, recording for about 30 days. So remember that they'll delete it if you don't actively save it. And, and don't forget, too, that the minutes are the official record of the meeting. Whether you have a recording of the meeting or not, the minutes will be the official record of what happens. You have to take minutes, even though that meeting was recorded. And remember that owners are required to, or they are allowed to request copies of the minutes of the open session. So, you know, you should be preparing those minutes in a timely manner. Just a practice pointer, um, the minutes really should be done immediately after the meeting or even better have the secretary or whoever's taking your minutes during the meeting actually taking the meeting minutes so that at the end of the meeting, all they have to do is proof them and save them and send them out to the board members. I, I think that's really pretty much it. A couple more things on, on regular board meetings, emergency meetings. Uh, sometimes your board may have the need to go into what we call an emergency board meeting. Um, and what makes it an emergency board meeting? You can't wait 48 hours to notice it. And so if you have an emergency board meeting, the reasons for the emergency meeting must be included in the emergency meeting minutes. So you have to take minutes for an emergency meeting. And the reason that why you're going into um, the emergency meeting is going to need to be listed in the minutes. And the minutes of those emergency meetings must be read and approved at the next regular board meeting. Um, so be really careful on that um, on your emergency meetings. And also don't try to push things into the emergency um, category when they're not truly emergencies. So some examples of an emergency would be, we've been named in a lawsuit and the association's been served with it. We as a board need to decide what steps we're going to take immediately. Um, you know, that would be a typical emergency. Um, maybe you have a fire in your common areas or the pool pump's broken and you need to repair it immediately and you need to get approval to spend the funds. Um, you know, it's something that you can't wait 48 hours to make a decision on. Okay, last but not least, use of email. Probably one of the largest problems, you know, facing associations who are violating the open meeting law. Boards that are using email to discuss items, boards that are using email to vote on items, Here's kind of the skinny on when you can use emails as a board member. So if you have an emergency situation, it's my opinion that your board can make a quick decision via email in emergency situations. All of those emails will need to be saved and read into the record at your next regular board meeting. But be really careful on this because you will be questioned as to whether it was truly an emergency or not. Um, the board can use email to exchange information, like here are the three bids for the tree trimming, and we'll be discussing these at the next meeting. That's fine. The board can come up with uh, their agenda for the board meeting by email. I think that's you know okay as long as you're not discussing agenda items. You can uh, determine what's the best time for all of you to meet by email. But anytime you cross the line and a quorum of the board is discussing association business or voting on association business via email, that's going to be a violation of the open meeting law, in my opinion. Now, remember, you have the emergency exception, which I briefly talked about here just a minute ago. And you can use email in those circumstances, but be careful if you do that. Really, I want to just make some closing remarks on annual meetings in 2021. It's expected that you're going to need to have your annual meeting in 2021 on a virtual platform. 
there's a little bit different prep time for an annual meeting that's done virtually versus um, just the way we always did it in person. Some points that I would like to make is you really need to plan ahead for your virtual annual meeting. Um, your notice is going to have to have all of the information on how owners can log on to the virtual meeting for your annual meeting. And you're really going to have to go out there and get absentee ballots. Because what we found is that with the virtual meetings for annual meetings, we have less homeowner participation than normal. And so it's more difficult to get a quorum. And so give yourselves plenty of time to get the ballots back or to get the uh, mail-in or absentee ballots back. Keep track of them starting two weeks out before the annual meeting and make sure that you're on track to get a quorum. If you're not, start sending out notices to owners, reminding them to vote um, and continue to do that until you reach your quorum. My feeling is, is that if you don't have a quorum before the annual meeting starts, you likely will not have a quorum um, at that annual meeting because usually the people that are attending on the virtual platform, you know, haven't or have already returned their absentee or mail-in ballot. Occasionally, I did do an annual meeting several months ago where we had two or three owners that attended the annual meeting virtually. And we did have them email their ballot to um, a designated person on the board so that their vote could be counted at the annual meeting. Um, but I think you, you really do need to plan ahead and make sure you're keeping your eye on that quorum. Okay, so we spent a lot of time on that problem, but I got to tell you, that's the biggest problem I see in associations right now, boards that aren't following the open meeting law. So the next problems are kind of easier problems, thank goodness, um, but they're problems that we still see nonetheless. So the next problem, number two, is short-term rentals and uh, what types of problems they're creating for associations. So a couple things. First question, let's have a quick little poll here of your associations. Um, does your association have problems with short-term rentals? Um, the poll results are 33% of you said, yes, we do have problems. 51% said, no, we don't currently have problems. And 16% said, you don't know. Okay, I would say probably the newest problem that's on my desk that we've kind of had over the past few years is short-term rentals. And so how do we, you know, what are the problems we're seeing? Um, associations, when the law changed in 2016 and uh, basically took away the right of municipalities, towns, and cities to regulate short-term rentals and put the burden on associations and said, if you don't want short-term rentals, it has to be in your CCNRs. And if it's not in your CCNRs, you can do an amendment to um, amend your CCNRs to limit short-term rentals. For example, like you could pass an amendment that says, you need a minimum of 30 days rental um, in order to rent in our association. Well, I think what, what's happened on this is that many associations prior to 2016 they didn't have that provision in their documents that required them to place short-term rental restrictions. Why didn't they? Because all the municipalities and cities and towns already had that in there for them in their city codes and ordinances. And the cities were enforcing it for us. Um, now the game's changed. Now associations need to actively, proactively you know, amend their documents if they want to have that type of provision in there, either eliminating short-term rentals altogether or possibly, you know, passing something where um, you have a minimum 30 days or a minimum 60 day rental period before an owner can, um, you know, you have to follow that minimum rental period. 
or they can't rent their unit. And so we're watching the legislation, like I said, in 2021, um, because we think that there may be something that might help associations. Um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. So how do you handle this if you're an association that's having issues with short-term rentals? And, you know, these are the VRBO, Airbnb rentals, nightly rentals, and your association doesn't have a provision in your documents that prohibits it. And you're seeing bachelorette party weekends, uh, tenants breaking the rules, a few things. Think about, can you do an amendment to your CCNRs? And do you have enough votes? Do you think you have enough votes in your community? in order to pass that. And that's where you really need to strategize with your association's attorney. Because if you already have 40% rentals in your community and it takes 75% owner approval to amend the, the declaration to put in a rental restriction, it's unlikely you're gonna be successful in that rental restriction. So we may need to get creative and maybe grandfather the existing owners who are renting and you know pass the restriction for all other owners or you know we have a lot of different suggestions on how to handle that but really the tip is if you're dealing with short term rental problems number 1 do consideration in terms of can we amend our ccnrs to address whatever the issue is can we put a minimum rental period in place can we prohibit rentals altogether if you're a condo, it's a sticky wicket because there's a provision in the Condominium Act that makes it very difficult for condominiums to implement rental restrictions. If you're a planned community, it's significantly easier. So that's kind of the, the long-term fix, change your documents. The short-term fix is make it hurt for the landlord owner if the tenant violates the documents. And the best way to get compliance by a landlord for their tenant's behavior is to find the landlord get the attorney involved for your association and potentially even file a lawsuit if it's really an ongoing repeated situation and the problem is, you know, really an issue in your neighborhood. So short-term solution, you know, reach out to the landlord, be firm, provide evidence of what the tenant's doing that's a violation, find the landlord because remember, they're leasing their unit or lot to make money. If the tenant's costing the landlord money, guess what? The landlord's not going to be as permissive or allow the tenant to get away with it. They're going to start passing that fine on to the tenant. And then remember, if it's escalating and you cannot get compliance, you've got somebody who's just blowing you off and has really bad Airbnb tenants, make sure you get the attorney involved and consider what your legal remedies are if, if you want to pursue a lawsuit. Okay, so problem number two, short-term rentals solved. Okay, problem number three, outdated and inconsistent association documents. So we have a great cheat sheet on a plan for amending association documents and implementing rental restrictions, um, which we're going to be sharing with you on both platforms right now. Um, and you'll also get the summary link when the class is over so that you can link to it after the class too. So what's the problem with outdated documents in Arizona? What we've found is that most of you are using documents that maybe have never been amended. And maybe your association was created in the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s. And the laws have changed significantly since that time. And just kind of like as a matter of, of rule, associations, in my opinion, really should be amending their documents to update them, make them consistent with Arizona law to you know, change outdated provisions, to get rid of the developer language, to address issues that are a problem in your association, like short-term rentals every 10 years. And so a common question that I get, you know, how much does it cost to amend CCNRs? It really depends. 
it could be anywhere from as low as, you know, $750 to all the way up to $5,000. It really just depends on what the condition of your association's documents are. And our firm does a, a great summary that we provide to anyone who's on the Zoom call or who's on Facebook Live today. And basically what we'll do is we'll do a free 15-minute review of your association's documents. And we'll provide you with what the procedure is to amend your documents, some suggestions on things we think you need to amend, and we'll give you a ballpark estimate of what it would cost to amend your documents. And this is just a really great free resource that we provide. And um, we hope you'll take advantage of it if you're one of those associations who has outdated documents and really needs some advice on, hey, where do we go from here to update them? Another great tip is look at our cheat sheet. Um, we have a five-step plan in our cheat sheet, which is the solution on how to amend your documents. And we go you know, from step one to step five. It's a time-proven plan um, to be successful in the amendment. Because if you're going to spend the time to amend your documents and the money to have an attorney help you through this process, you want to make sure that you're successful. And this five-step plan works. Um, you know, I, I can think of very, very few times out of the thousands of documents that we've amended for associations where they haven't been successful in the amendment following this five-step plan. So we'll help, you, we'll help you take a look at it and it will help your association with the problem that you're dealing with with outdated documents. Okay, our fourth problem is we have difficult and disgruntled homeowners in our community. And they're driving us crazy, coming to board meetings, being difficult, um, criticizing the board on social media, um, sending out poison pen letters to our homeowners on Nextdoor, um, claiming that the association is, is doing things improperly, et cetera. Does that sound familiar? I bet it does, because if every association has at least one difficult owner. We even have one in my association. And I'm going to give you some suggestions on how to deal with these difficult owners. Sometimes we call them gadflies. And I got this from um, a publication that I read from CAI National many years ago. Um, and we also have a great cheat sheet on dealing with difficult people and harassment that my office team just shared with you in the chat. Um, so how do we deal with the gadfly? First, at board meetings, announce the procedures at the beginning of the board meeting. If you're on a virtual platform, you may need to you know, mute all the owners and only allow comments to the comment section if you have you know, especially disruptive or difficult owner in the audience. You, know, you also may want to announce in your newsletter, in the annual meeting, you know, these are our procedures for our meetings. We're expecting that everybody follows them. Basically, that would be you know, no talking out of turn, no bad language, no personal attacks, no interruptions during the meeting. And if somebody does that, then the president should give them a warning. And obviously, if they continue doing it, they can be removed from the Zoom meeting, which actually is kind of a really great feature of the Zoom meetings, right? If you give somebody two warnings and they continue to be a problem, the administrator host can you know, eject them from the meeting. Make sure you're enforcing the meeting procedures uniformly. So, you know, you want to make sure that if a non-difficult owner is disrupting the meeting, that we're giving them the same warning that we would for a difficult owner. If you have, you know, a tip for dealing with a difficult owner, sometimes they just have an issue that they're fixated on and upset about. And so this could maybe be done at a meeting or it could be done outside of a meeting telephonically or, you know, in likely telephonically right now during the pandemic. Ask the difficult owner to explain what's the exact issue that you're upset about um, in order just so that they know that you're interested in communicating with them rather than arguing. And then be sure to listen. 
Because what I tell my team in my office is sometimes when we have a difficult owner that the board's asked us to handle on their behalf, sometimes they have legitimate concerns. And so we want to make sure that we're listening carefully to what they're saying and that we are, you know, agreeing if there are issues, agreeing like, hey, that does sound like something that we need to look into. Ask them what they want. You know, if they're upset about something, ask them, what is it that you want us to do to help you? Sometimes they just say to me, I want someone to apologize to me for how I've been treated. And so we say, we're sorry sometimes on behalf of associations, if maybe something didn't go well or didn't go the way it should have. And sometimes that's enough. Um, Also, if you're asking them, you know, what, what they want specifically, it may be something that's really easy that we can help them with quickly. So keep that in mind as a tool to deal with disgruntled owners. And then last, remember, don't argue with these people. Do not respond with anger, trade insults that just kind of raises and escalates this issue to you know a significantly higher level. And honestly, that's sometimes what some of these difficult people want. They want you to lose control. That's their gas in their gasoline tank. And so don't give them that. Um, and remember, the board doesn't have to rebut every comment of any member. You know, you can just say, well, we appreciate your comments. Thank you for providing them today and, and move on. And then last but not least, you know, use parliamentary control. Know when to table a subject if it's going nowhere. Make sure that people aren't talking out of turn. Just using some of these parliamentary um, suggestions are, are really helpful in having the board move forward with business at their meetings. Last but not least, harassment. Remember that if you truly have a dangerous owner that you're dealing with in your association, you do have some legal rights under the law, and those are listed specifically in our cheat sheet um, on dealing with difficult people. You can go to justice court and get an injunction prohibiting harassment against the owner. If you're in that unfortunate situation, please make sure that you're reaching out to your legal counsel to help you through that process. Okay, let's go on to our next problem, uh, which is problem number five. Fraud and embezzlement. Um, This occurs when a board member or a manager is stealing money from the association. Some warning signs, um, we have these listed on our cheat sheet, which is tips for preventing theft and fraud of association funds. Um, And these warning signs of fraud are things that we've seen as we've seen different news articles about associations having money embezzled from them. If you Google embezzlement and HOA in Arizona, you will be shocked to see how many instances of this has occurred in Arizona. Um, So what are warning signs? So the warning signs are missing bank statements. So you're not ever getting an original bank statement. General ledgers that don't balance. Um, Missing or altered documents. Photocopies of important financial documents rather than originals. Unexplained cash shortages. Um, you know, possibly having times where your bank account is overdrawn, which should never be happening happening for your association. Unauthorized credits to receivable accounts, increased past due accounts, meaning like the vendors aren't being paid in a timely manner, likely because the money that should have been used to pay the vendor is being embezzled. Duplicate payments to vendors, that's a big one. Unexplained overdraft and other bank charges, we kind of touched on that a little bit and unauthorized purchase transactions and payments for unspecified services. Um, At any one time, our firm is always handling, you know, at least one instance of fraud and embezzlement in an association. Um, Right now, I think we were helping two associations that have had board members or a manager 
steal money from their association. So if that happens, make sure you reach out to your legal counsel right away because the association does have legal rights. You can possibly make a claim on your fidelity bond and we can help you through the process on recovering that money. Okay, so not just to give you the problem without the solution, what are some tips so that this never happens to your association? Keep your records up to date. So don't let your management company or your treasurer fall behind on providing financial statements and bank accounts and accountings on your year-to-date budget. Everything should be done monthly. Make sure that you have the control of the reserve funds to the entire board and not one person. And the reserve account, shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to transfer money electronically. That should be something that would require a signature of all board members to transfer money. Monthly financial reports should be prepared and made available for board review. And what should be included in that is like a balance sheet, a statement of revenues and expenses, and a comparison of actual revenues and expenditures to the budgeted amounts. Please require two signatures on all checks for your association. I know the management companies hate it when I say this, but really it's the only way that you can you know, verify that the expense is correct as a board member. And you know what you may want to do, sometimes management companies will give you pushback on that. What you may want to say is, you know, we require two signatures on any check that's over a certain dollar amount or the management company can pay the regular expenses for the association, like the, you know, the bills, the electric bill, the water bill. Um, but any unusual bills would require two signatures by a board member. Um, prior to signing checks, make sure that the authorized check signers review the invoices and the supporting documents. Um, and they shouldn't just be blindly signing blank checks. That's a big no-no. Everybody on the board, but especially the treasurer, should be reviewing bank statements and the financial reconciliations on a monthly basis as part of your board meeting. Have a plan for petty cash. Keep a small amount on hand. Make sure that there's a written procedure for how petty cash is handled. Regularly review your delinquent receivables balances to make sure that something's being done um, on you know, homeowners that are paying their assessments. Make sure you have adequate fidelity insurance to cover the volunteers and employees who handle funds. I know an association that had a very significant amount of money embezzled from it, over $500,000. And fortunately, they had a fidelity bond for a million dollars. And most fidelity insurance is only in like $50,000 or $75,000. So just be really careful that you're carrying adequate fidelity insurance to um, cover you know, any potential losses that you may have for your association. Make sure you're hiring a CPA to conduct an independent annual review, audit, or compilation annually. Um, remember, it's the law in Arizona to have an audit, review, or compilation done each year. You're only required to have a CPA do it if your documents require that. And if your board discovers that any funds are missing, just be sure to reach, reach out to your legal counsel as soon as possible to help you through that process. The suspected fraud perpetrator should be removed from a position of control of your funds. And we need to notify the insurance carrier, your bank, um, and you really need your legal counsel involved to help you with that. Okay, next problem, uh, reserve funds. Do we have to fund a reserve, a reserve fund uh, for our association? How do we do it? Where do we start? What is it? We have a really great cheat sheet on reserve funds for community associations, which we're going to be sharing with you. Um, but basically, here's the law. In Arizona, um, you are not required to have a reserve fund or reserve bank account, and you're not required to have a reserve study. 
but best practices are that you should have a reserve fund because that allows for an association to provide for the repair, maintenance, and replacement of the association association's capital improvements as the community ages. And so we, we recommend that you take a quick look at the cheat sheet that we've shared with you. Um, and our cheat sheets, of course, are always on our webpage too at mulcahylawfirm.com to give you just a good overview of what exactly is a reserve fund, what's a reserve study. The typical cost we find is really anywhere between $800 and $2,000 if you're a really large association with a lot of assets. They should be updated probably about every three to five years. Um, and so let us know if you need help. If you, your association doesn't have one right now and you want to get the process started, please feel free to reach out to us. We're, we're here to help you. Okay, the next problem is how to handle records requests from owners. Um, and how long should you keep your association's records? So briefly, the Arizona law does address how owners can request records from an association. Basically, almost all records of an association are able to be seen by owners and they can either request to see a copy of the records or they can request a copy at 15 cents per page. Owners can request the records and we have 10 business days for the association to respond to those records requests. There are certain things that owners can't have and I'm going to briefly touch on those. These are records that the association can withhold and not give to the owners if the association's board so chooses. And so some examples of this would be any privileged communication between an attorney for the association and the association, executive session meeting minutes, any personal health or financial information about owner, about other owners, or also about employees or independent contractors of the association. Those are kind of the most common things but really everything else is fair game. So just remember, you can withhold executive session meeting minutes, advice from your attorney that's privileged, and records that are personal information about owners, independent contractors, and employees in your association. If you're having issues with that, owners making records requests, please be sure to reach out to your attorney to help you through that process. Okay, let's talk about how long do we need to keep records? You know, really, there's some things we association should keep forever. I'll encourage you to do a deep dive on our cheat sheet on this topic. Some examples of things that you really need to keep forever would be minutes, CCNRs, your corporate governing documents, your bylaws, easements, contracts that may potentially have litigation in the future. Other records you can toss after seven years. And the reason why it's seven is because there's a six-year statute of limitations in Arizona for breach of contract. And again, all this is on our cheat sheets. So please be sure to, to check out what we're sharing in our, um, in our comments section and what we'll be sharing after this presentation today to get the exact links. So here's some records that you only have to keep for seven years. So financial records, records related, related to former employees, expired contracts, old leases, insurance records, accident reports, and settled insurance claims. I think most records, you, you'd be surprised that, you know, a lot of records can be, you know, deleted or if you have them on a network or destroyed if you have paper copies. If you have questions on whether you should get rid of something or keep it, please reach out to our firm or check out our cheat sheet on this topic to help you kind of get rid of some of that clutter. Okay, our last three problems are kind of fun problems. Number eight, lack of volunteers. We can't find people to run for the board. Some quick tips on that. It's a thankless job to be on the board. Of course, we all know that. So what we want to do is send a letter asking for volunteers to serve on the board. 
if that's not successful, pinpoint people in your community, maybe people who have served on committees who have shown an interest in serving on the board and call them and email them and ask them if they would be interested in serving on the board. You may have to ask twice. That's how I got back on my board. I said no the first time because I'd already put in, you know, a decade on my board and I thought I needed a break and then I you know, took some time off and and then I came back when they asked me, you know, a second time, hey, we really don't have anyone. Would you be willing to come back? If no one volunteers, one tip you could do is have your attorney send a letter to the membership explaining that the association could go into receivership if we can't find anybody to run the association. And that's going to be expensive for our community, could result in a special assessment and it's bad for our property values. And I can truthfully say that anytime our firm has sent that letter to association members that, um, you know, when we can't find a board members to serve on the board, we've gotten people to step up and um, serve on the board. Okay, number nine, issues with pets. How do we handle pets in associations? So we have a couple different cheat sheets for you on, um, you know, pets. First, just know that there is a federal law that allows owners to have emotional support pets, and it's outlined outlined on our federal laws cheat sheet. We also have another cheat sheet that just deals with pets in general. Um, Some common problems with pets would be if the association has a no pet policy and an owner wants to have a pet and they're, you know, calling the pet an emotional support pet, there's a special procedure under federal law that they're allowed to have that pet. And you'll want to check out our our federal laws cheat sheet to find out the details on that. Um, But there's limited things that the association can ask for. So you want to make sure that we're not violating the Fair Housing Act if you're in that situation. Another problem that I have seen just recently, even in the past two weeks and many times over the years, is dangerous breeds or aggressive dogs. Remember that if you have a dog incident where there's a dog bite or a dog attack of another dog or another pet, um, make sure that the association is documenting those incidents in writing. So there's a paper trail that the association is sending the dog owner a letter regarding the issue and requesting that that dog be kept on a leash and a muzzle. Um, Also, Maricopa County Animal Control should be contacted anytime there's an incident to investigate the uh, whatever accident happened. And also the association may need to to notify their insurance carrier if there is a dog bite on the property because the association could be listed as a defendant if there's a lawsuit on the dog bite. So if you're in that situation with dangerous breeds, make sure you're reaching out to your legal counsel to discuss that. Um, especially if there has been, um, you know, an incident in your community where there has been a dog bite. Okay, last topic. This is a topic which is the sign of the times, right? So owners want to display flags that are politically charged or signs that are politically charged in your community. What is the law on this now? Okay, so on our cheat sheet, we're going to be sharing with you right now our top 10 cheat sheet. We On that cheat sheet, we discuss flags and, um, you know, I think it's important for you to understand what the law says. So very briefly, some things to remember is that politically signed, politically charged signs and flags right now need to be handled delicately. And some examples of those would be like Black Lives Matter flags, um, maybe the rainbow flag, maybe um, any politically motivated flags that might be a result of the um, election that we had in November, all of these need to be handled delicately. So if your association is in the position where you are about ready to send out a violation letter to an owner on a flag or a sign in their yard, 
make sure you're really thinking through the consequences on that and discussing it with your legal counsel. Here's what the law says. So an association cannot prohibit the outdoor display of the American flag or any uh, replica of the armed forces flags um, if the, the flag is, is flown in a manner consistent with the federal flag code. We also cannot prohibit the display of POW MIA flags, the Arizona state flag, the Arizona Indian Nations flag, and the Gazden flag, which is the don't tread on me flag. You know, so there are a limited number of flags that people can fly on their properties in condominiums and planned communities. And, you know, obviously the Black Lives Matter flag, the rainbow, the, um, you know, maybe some of the Trump signs that we're seeing, none of those are covered under the flags that are allowed to be flown in Arizona right now on an owner's property. But again, sign of the times is that maybe you want to relax enforcement during this time in our country. Um, or the association could potentially be on national news or get a lot of negative publicity. So that's up to your association, how you want to handle it. Political signs, um, you know, are covered under a different law. And we're not in the, the time period under Arizona law where owners can have political signs up unless there's, you know, an election that's forthcoming. Um, so these are just things that we have to keep, a, keep an eye on. These are difficult problems. Um, and so a lot of times clients will say to me, well, how should we handle this sign? We have an owner that has a Black Lives Matter, you know, sign or flag on their property. And we have another owner that's complaining about it. You know, delicately is what I would suggest. We've had some managers that will reach out to the owner with the sign and ask them, you know, notify them that, you know, under Arizona law and under the association's documents, they can't keep the sign and ask them, you know, how, how much longer do you plan on keeping it up? And in some situations, the owner um, has said, you know, I'm, I'm really just going to keep it up for, you know, a couple more weeks and then I promise I'll take it down and it's resolved easily. In other situations, we have owners that say, I'm keeping that flag up and I'm going to go to channel three if you make me take it down. And so, you know, depending on what the response is, you may want to consider and consult with your legal counsel as to how far you want to take it on one of those politically charged signs right now in our country. So those are our 10 problems. I hope we gave you some, you know, good tips. I'm four minutes into overtime. Sorry about that. Uh, but we had a lot to cover. And I think um, considering it's only four minutes, I think we did pretty well. The questions in these presentations sometimes have uh, the best information for people who are listening in. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the question quickly and then provide a quick answer. So the first question is from George. How should an HOA advise the community if a resident has COVID-19? What liability does the HOA have? Good question. So if your association uh, has verified evidence that you have a resident that has COVID-19, you would have to actually verify that with that resident or with a relative of that resident. Um, the association can put out a notification to the community just saying we're letting everybody know that a resident in the community has tested positive for COVID. Please be careful, you know, wear your mask, socially distance. You should not be using that resident's name. You might want to reiterate what CDC cleaning standards the association is doing at this time in the community in the letter. 
um, and indicate that the association will never be giving out the name of the owner, even if requested. What liability does the HOA have? It's hard to comment because I don't know how, you know, if there's allegations that the owner may have contracted it at a pickleball match at the association or, or what. But, you know, we haven't seen any cases where associations have been sued. I haven't received any demand letters from letter demand letters from attorneys for residents that claim, you know, that they received COVID from the association. I think that the liability could be is, okay, what if the association is aware that a resident attended a pickleball event in the community? And another resident was there who had COVID. And do we have to notify the owners? And my feeling would be yes. The association should be proactive and communicate with their residents if there has been any potential exposure or if there could be future exposure. So if you're in that situation, great idea to reach out to your legal counsel and discuss you know, what would be the best way to handle that situation. Next question is from Travis. Um, section 33-1249 includes proxies as part of account to determine quorum at an owner's meeting, but section 33-1250 prohibits proxies. And our HOA uses the same language to determine whether we have a quorum. This year, we will not have a quorum because mail-in votes are not to be counted. What should we do? And why didn't, doesn't the state change this? Okay, so quick answer on this, Travis, is that proxy voting in Arizona is only allowed under developer control. Once the owners have control of the association, proxy voting is prohibited. And so in those situations where, in, even in the associations that have developer control, the developers are opting not to use proxy voting, just so you know. Proxy voting is a thing from the past. I haven't seen anyone use proxy voting in a developer-controlled association in years. So every association really should be using absentee or mail-in ballots now. And I'm not sure why you're not counting your mail-in or absentee ballots in your association. You should be. And like I said, when I was talking about annual meetings during the pandemic, it's really important that you are keeping track of those absentee and mail-in ballots about two weeks before your annual meeting and determining whether you're going to have enough to have a quorum. And if you're not, you should be reaching out to your owners to ask them to provide the mail-in or absentee ballot so that we can have a quorum. Okay. Um, and why doesn't the state change it? I don't think that they have to because proxy voting is still allowed under developer control. So that section doesn't necessarily conflict. Okay, next question from Rick, one of my favorite clients. Good to hear from you today, Rick. Thanks for being here. Has the governor indicated how many people may congregate in common areas and HOAs? I mean, I don't think the governor has specifically addressed HOAs. I know that previously the governor has, you know, made statements that they don't want more than 50 people meeting um, in any location. In the pools, you cannot, the governor has indicated that we cannot have more than 10 people congregating in the pool areas and associations. Um, and so I hope that answers your question. You know, obviously, this is not the time to be having a potluck in your association or a pool party. And be mindful that your signage around your association should be encouraging owners to socially distance. And at the pool, you know, check out our cheat sheet um, that we've already provided here today on one of our COVID-19 cheat sheets on reopening common areas. We have the exact language that you should have on your pool sign to make sure that you're meeting the governor's uh, required orders. Okay, next question is from David. Considering the open Arizona open meeting laws, can an HOA board or its committees agree on their officer positions, such as board president chair in a closed meeting? by some collaboration outside of an open meeting. 
Then if that collaboration outside an open meeting occurs, can the board either vote or simply announce those positions in an open meeting? So David, I would say that electing officers for your association is not an emergency that is needs to be done outside of an open board meeting. So, you know, by collaborating outside an open meeting on a non-emergency subject, you'd be violating the open meeting law. I see that you're going to try to, after the fact, approve it at an open board meeting. Um, you know, that would legitimize it somewhat, but it's still, it would be a violation of the open meeting law. The better way to do it is just to have the board elect its officers right at the end of the annual meeting or do it at the first board meeting after the annual meeting. Okay, what are the legal options for removal of feral cats? That's from an anonymous person. Okay, so well, first of all, I would say that if you have feral cats in your neighborhood, somebody's feeding them. So make sure that you're publicizing to your neighbors that um, and to your owners that please do not feed the feral cats because um, it's creating an issue in our association with you know an overrun of, of cats. Um, you know, you can contact the Humane Society to ask what different programs that they have possibly for um, trapping the cats. But really, if you eliminate the food source, that should solve your problem. Um, but the association trapping, you know, animals, you know, is not something that we recommend. You know, and I would reach out to the Humane Society to see what their suggestions are on this. Okay, Joan, the next question is from Joan. Relative to the bill that would modify the percentage required to modify CCNRs, does that apply to new documents or would it only override the percentage requirements in existing documents? Um, that's a really good question. I think the way that it's worded is that it would override any set of CCNRs in, in associations. But again, remember, this is just a bill that's pending in the legislature and that what actually is the final version of that bill, we don't know. I mean, as of right now, it is just going to lower the percentage requirement to amend the documents to uh, over 50 percent. But one of the bills that has that in there also has a bunch of like carbon amendments where it wouldn't apply. And one of the carbon amendments was, you know, on short-term rentals, which is obviously something that associations would have loved to use this particular restriction uh, modification for. So we'll just have to see what happens. But I think it does, it would apply to all documents, whether they recorded before the statute or after the statute, if the statute gets passed. Okay, the next question is, what are the implications if the minutes for the annual meeting year earlier are not approved at the annual meeting this year? This is a common problem, actually. So let's say you're about ready to conduct the 2021 annual meeting. And, you know, one of the things that you should put on your agenda for discussion is and vote is approval of the 2020 annual meeting because you can't approve the meeting minutes from 2020 until 2021. So what do you do if you screw it up and you forget to do it? Really just wait till the next annual meeting and approve two years of minutes at the next annual meeting. It's not that big of a deal. It happens all the time. And, um, you know, but what we, some things that you can do to make sure it doesn't happen is make sure that the ballot that you're sending out has approval of the minutes as a, a vote in addition to election of directors, and that the agenda of the annual meeting also makes that a topic of discussion and vote. Okay, when writing the minutes covering the annual meeting, is there any legal requirement to say in there? What was discussed during the question and answer part of the annual meeting with the homeowners? So no, there's no requirement to do that. Really, the meeting minutes for the annual meeting and the meeting minutes for regular board meetings should be what was decided. It doesn't necessarily have to be what was discussed. 
Okay, the next question is from John. Do you foresee the statute on amendments? Wow, people are interested in this. Particularly House Bill 2619 passing. How would we prevent a, a vocal few, such as some coalitions in Arizona who dislike associations from having a disproportionate influence on legislation? Okay, great question. Do I think the amendment bill, which would lower the requirement to amend CCNRs, do I think that's going to pass this year? Possibly. Um, you know, I think we probably got like a 40 to 45% chance that passes. Although I've been doing this 24 years and I can say that usually a bill of this nature, it takes a couple of years of being introduced before something like that would pass. Um, now, this is the second year we've seen something like this. So it's possible it could pass this year. But this is going to be kind of controversial. And the state has a lot of other issues with COVID and political issues right now. And I'm not sure that, you know, they have the bandwidth to take this on this year. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. How can we, you know, stop like one person, you know, that's an angry homeowner from influencing legislation? The best way to stop that is for all of us together to be contacting our legislators when there's a bad bill. And so when we see that there's a bill out there that's going to hurt our industry, make it more difficult for boards to conduct business, make it difficult for management companies to conduct business, you can bet, sure as I'm sitting here, that our firm is going to be talking about it on our Facebook page and on seminars and asking all of you to reach out to our legislators to tell them you're opposed to these bills. So that's how we stop one disproportionate person from you know, influencing legislation. Next question is from Eli. There is an item in the 2020 summary cheat sheet from you know, the legislation that was not passed that says associations cannot prevent solar installation. I thought that was already the case. We have a homeowner who erected an unsightly solar flower. Can the HOA ask it be taken down? Okay, so here's the quick review on solar energy devices in Arizona. Associations cannot effectively prohibit the use of solar energy on that owner's property. Legislation that was introduced in 2020 is a fine-tuning type legislation that's going to continue to fine-tune the existing law. So that obviously didn't pass last year because no bills regarding HOAs and condos passed last year. Um, so how do we handle the owner that has an unsightly solar flower? delicately would be what I would say. Um, you know, I don't know if the solar flower is going to be considered a solar energy device under the statute. So we'd have to look at the specifics on that. Probably not, if I had to guess. I mean, I don't know how large it is, but usually the solar panels are being used to heat a pool or water in your home. Um, you know, and I'm guessing a solar flower isn't going to be that large. So I mean, I'm kind of thinking here, like, pick your battles. This may not be a battle you want to pick, um, but I don't know. Maybe it's the whole front yard with the solar flower. So I'd have to probably see pictures to comment more on this. But can the HOA ask to be taken down? I think I'd be really careful on that right now um, because there is a law that prohibits us from effectively prohibiting. And I'm not sure you really want to get involved in $100,000 litigation over a solar flower. So talk with your legal counsel to determine, you know, if it falls under the category of being a solar energy device and what remedies you may have on this situation. Okay, next question. Where can I find detailed examples of how to conduct voting for amendments to the CCNRs? Um, we'll look at our cheat sheet first. Um, we shared that in the presentation today, and we're going to be sharing it in a link after the presentation today. You can also find it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. 
So you could also contact our office. We can give you a sample uh, mail-in or absentee ballot for a CCNR amendment. If that would help you, feel free to reach out to our office. Just go to our webpage, like I said, at mulcahylawfirm.com and reach out to us that way. Okay, the next question is from Harris. What is, from your practical experience, the best protocol when you are taking over the HOA board after the previous president was on the board for over 10 years and carried the same property management company? The management company is now being difficult and won't allow access to major documents and books. I have no doubt that we will replace them with other management company. But what is the best timing? Okay, first, Harris, I think you need to reach out to our firm because we can give you some suggestions on how best to deal with the management company in this situation. We see this situation, interestingly, all the time. So we have a board change and maybe the board liked a certain management company. And maybe they let the management company just do everything and they just kind of were very limited involvement. A new board comes in and they want to do things differently. They want to be more involved. They want to get things done and they want to see records and books. And obviously, the management company works for the board and the books and records belong to the association and should be provided. Every document should be provided to the board. Okay, the homeowners, there are some documents that we talked about already in this presentation that we can withhold from the homeowners, but the board gets everything. I mean, it's your responsibility to be in charge of the association. You have to know everything. So I would say it does sound like it's time for a management company change if they're refusing to give you the records and you're on the board and they're being difficult because let's face it, they work for you. We're a team, right? With the management company and the board. And the team members need to be respectful of each other. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the board makes policy and direction decisions regarding the association and the management company uh, takes direction from the board. So it sounds like you need a new management company. You may want to check out our cheat sheet on our website. Um, We have one on how to select a management company. And if you contact our office, we can give you some suggestions on management companies that might be a good fit for your association based upon um, the size of your association, your geographical location, and, you know, what's important to your association, you know, in terms of having a responsive management company, we can give you some good ideas for that. So reach out to us. Next question is from Joan. What are your thoughts on meeting rules for board chartered communities? Should they follow the same open meeting rules that the board must follow by law? Okay, so committees, let's just do a quick research on that. Under Arizona law, committees that meet regularly for scheduled, regularly scheduled board committee meetings, excuse me, um, those do need to follow the open meeting law. Only committees that are regularly scheduled committee meetings need to follow the open meeting law. So if they have a regular meeting and it's every quarter or every month, they have to follow the open meeting law that we talked today. If they do not have regularly scheduled meetings, they do not have to follow the HOA and condo open board meeting law. Next question from Jose. Can I force my HOA board to notify me by email for open meetings or am I required to check their website every two days for notices? Um, You cannot force them to notify you by email. You could request it, but I would suggest, you know, the law doesn't require them to provide you with the email notice. So I would suggest that you continue to check the website for the notices. Next question is from Christine. I am a homeowner, former condo board member in an association still controlled by the builder. Is it hard to get any information or response from the property manager? 
Oh, you're saying it is hard to get any information or response from the property manager. Only one meeting a year is required at this point. Any advice? Okay, so it shouldn't be difficult to get a response from the property manager. So I think what you should do is attend your next board meeting and mention to the board in the homeowner forum that it's difficult to get a response from the manager. And you would, you know, you just want to make the board aware of that and then ask the board to help you with whatever question you need a response on. Only one meeting a year is required at this point. Is that because you're under developer control? I don't know. I doubt it because you're saying that you're a former condo board member, but maybe that was in a different association. Under Arizona law, you know, you are only required to have the annual meeting every year. But typically in the association's bylaws, it requires you to have a regular board meeting on a significantly more frequent basis. Most of our boards meet every month with the exception of maybe December and maybe some summer months where they can't get a quorum. It's unusual if you're post-developer controlled that you only have one meeting a month. And so I think that's a good question to ask your board. How can you conduct business if you only have one meeting a month? Or excuse me, one meeting a year. Um, the next question is from Sandy. Do votes have to be unanimous at virtual meetings as it has to be if using email? Well, good question. So no, it doesn't have to be unanimous at a virtual meeting. Arizona law allows us to have virtual board meetings as long as everybody can hear each other. Um, the homeowners and the board members, can everybody can hear each other. And so it does not have to be unanimous. It just has to be a quorum present. And then a majority of a quorum makes decisions for your association. Okay, the next question is best practices. Should public forum take place prior to the meeting being called to order or after the meeting has been called to order? You know, I, honestly, it really doesn't matter to me. I think it can be done either way. But best practices probably would be to call the meeting to order and then have the homeowner forum. The next question is from David. When an HOA board indicates they're having an executive session, they must state what section of the law covers the session. Must the board also state the nature of the subject, such as employee issues, financial issues, legal issues? My suggestion would be yes. State the specific section under the law that they need to, that they're going to be discussing and have the name of that specific section listed as well. So if you're going into executive session to discuss, you know, legal advice from your attorney, you should list the section under the statute that pertains to that and then say, you know, legal advice from our attorney will be discussed. The next question is from Mary. What are the requirements for minutes from board executive meetings? Confidential info that can't be shared. Okay, so basically the, the minutes of the executive session should be set up just like the regular session meeting minutes. And it should indicate, you know, the date, the time, who attended the executive session and any decisions that the board made. And those minutes are confidential and will not be disclosed to anybody other than the board. Next question is from Wally. Can members, i.e. non-board members, question or challenge the minutes before they are approved by the board? So, yes. Remember, we talked earlier in my this presentation that before the board takes formal action on something, the owners should be allowed to participate if the owners want to. If you don't agree with the minutes, you're welcome to make a very short statement just saying that you don't agree with them in whatever capacity that feel that you don't agree with them. But you can't, basically, it'll just be noted that you made a comment um, and the board will continue to vote on them. So you're welcome to make a statement, that time a short statement, but it doesn't stop the minutes from being voted on and your statement doesn't have to be included in the minutes. Ultimately, the board makes the final determination on, on whether the minutes of last month's meeting minutes are approved um, at that meeting. 
Okay, see the next question is anonymous. What can an owner do when they know a board is violating the open meeting board rules? Open meeting board meeting rules. A couple suggestions would be, you know, you might want to reach out to the board and just make them aware of the open meeting law in Arizona. You could provide them with our cheat sheet on open meetings and, you know, just state that it's my opinion that you may be violating the open board meeting rules. Here's a handout on this topic. If you continue to think that they're violating the rules, you know, the open meeting law rules, you have some different legal remedies. I would first start by writing a letter stating why you believe that's the case to the board. Um, If they continue to do it and you believe they're violating the law, you can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a complaint against the association there is a filing fee to charge and that they will charge you. It'd be $500 for one issue. And you can have an administrative law hearing on, you know, are they violating the open meeting laws? Um, you can go to Superior Court and file a lawsuit against the association to require them to comply with the open meeting laws. I think those are some good creative suggestions on how you can handle a problem and how you can escalate it if the problem isn't being, being resolved. Are email rules the same for HOA committees? Yes, it really just depends. Remember, the open meeting law only applies to committees that meet regularly. So best practices would be that using email for regularly scheduled committee meetings could potentially violate the open meeting law. For HOA committees that don't regularly meet, they can use email to conduct business. Can you remind me that emails need, can you remind that emails need to be separate from the person's work email or personal email in case of a subpoena? So as Jill brought this point up, it's it's best practices for association board members to have a separate email for their board communications. And this is in the event that if there's a lawsuit and their emails, you know, there's a request for production of documents or a subpoena that the board's personal emails wouldn't be intermixed with the association business. And it would you know, ensure that the board would have privacy on their personal emails. So I do think it's best practices for all board members to have a separate email just for association business. Next question is from William. Can you please discuss committees? How to form one? Who can be on one? What committee charter is? Thanks. Okay, we have a cheat sheet on committees on our webpage. Um, So I would encourage you to go there and look at it. So it's www.mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, so committees, it really just depends on what committees your association has. Typically, the committees are set up in your CCNRs or bylaws. And it will also talk about how to form a committee for your association and who can be on the committee and that type of thing. It also will typically list what's the charter for those committees. If your board wants to deviate from, you know, or add a committee that isn't in your bylaws or in your CCNRs, the board would be the one that forms the committee, the board appoints the committee, and the board determines who the, you know, who's on the committee and what the charter is. And this would all be done by a majority vote. Next question is from Crystal. Is it allowed for the current president and others running to walk door-to-door campaigning and collecting ballots? So short answer, yes, that is allowed. Okay, Uh, the next question is from Anonymous. Is it good practices to hire unlicensed, uninsured, and non-bonded handyman to perform tasks on community property, such as plumbing, electrical? Is the entire board liable for the decisions of a single member or those working members working, working independently of the entire board? 
Okay, so first thing, we're going to be talking about this, I think, in either the next class on our virtual HOA Academy. It's one of the topics or, uh, or the fourth class. I can't remember exactly, but we're going to be talking just exactly about this subject, hiring of licensed, insured, and bonded contractors. Best practices is always hire a licensed, insured, and bonded handyman for your association's repairs, for any construction work, roofing work, etc. That's best practices. There may be some limited and, and plumbing and electrical, which is your example right here. I mean, mandatory. You should be hiring licensed, insured, and bonded handymen. There may be a time where you don't want to hire somebody who's licensed, insured, and bonded if like they're just changing like low, low level light bulbs and you know you don't want to pay the, the fees for that. Just recognize if you hire somebody like that, there's a risk. And you have to weigh the potential liability of the association that that person should get injured um, with the benefit of paying that person less money for doing the job. But best practices is, in my opinion, please hire licensed, insured, and bonded contractors. And the entire board would be liable for the board hiring, you know, an unlicensed, unbonded, and uninsured person and that person getting injured, not personally liable, but the association, you know, would be held liable in the event that, you know, there's legal liability that's determined. Okay, pending legislation may allow the cities to regulate short-term rentals. Again, comma, correct. Yeah, yes, there is legislation. Um, there was legislation introduced in 2020. We're seeing similar legislation this year that would, you know, give back to the cities the right to regulate short-term rentals. You know, I'm not sure that the cities are going to want to, though, frankly, you know, because there is revenue that's coming in from the short-term rentals in different associations. So if this law passes and it goes back to cities, towns, and municipalities regulating short-term rentals, every city, town, or municipality is going to be able to make their own choices on that. And I don't know what those choices will be. Uh, The next question, uh, we have about 13 questions left. Is that about right? 13 Is it 13? I think about 13. We're on number 27. Okay. Um, What am I to make of a three-member HOA board? 70 single-family homes in our community. That doesn't seem to meet virtual or otherwise except for an annual meeting. And no one except me attends. I've never seen a meeting announcement or agenda. Also, I heard that I have been recently elected to the board, but neither of the other two board members nor the management company has made contact with me to let me know. Is this common? Short answer would be no, this is definitely not common. Okay, so if you are you know, still serving on your board, if you are serving on your board, you should reach out to your management company directly and say, it's my understanding I've been elected to the board and we need to be following the law. And you, know, you might wanna provide them with our virtual meetings cheat sheet. And you, know, you need to reach out to the other two board members too and just say, hey, I think we need to schedule a meeting so we can discuss association business. Okay, I just got noticed that we have about 20 questions left. I'm going to keep plugging through all of them um, as we go. So just bear with me. Most of these look like they're pretty short questions, so it should go pretty quickly. Next question is, how should HOAs establish an emergency contact information list for elderly members? And what is the HOA liability? Okay, the association doesn't have any legal obligation to have an emergency contact list for your elderly members. So just know that that's not a requirement. Do you have liability on this? No, this, you're not a care home. Associations are, it's not one of their responsibilities or legal responsibilities that you have to do. 
if an association does get an emergency contact information list going, you know, you need to indicate specifically that, hey, if the information needs to be updated, it's the responsibility of the owner. And this is something that may or may not be updated going forward. And, you know, we have no liability. It's just, a, it's for information only and we'll keep it with your records. Next question is anonymous. Can a maintenance vendor remove trees and or shrubs at their discretion without notifying the homeowner? That's a great question because we see lawsuits on this. So really vendors of the association take direction from the board. And so if the board tells them to remove a dead tree or relocate something, you know, they should be taking it from the vendor, right? And the board should be giving direction to the vendor. So should a vendor be just doing this, you know, without any board direction? Likely no. But sometimes the board gives the maintenance vendors a lot of leeway and discretion in determining this. So I would just reach out to your board, find out what their position is on this so that you better understand. It sounds like probably maybe something was removed from your property. Okay, next question is from Paula. How do you handle homeowners and residents decorating common areas when it has not been enforced and there is no documentation submitted for board approval? Um, so, well, first of all, if somebody is decorating the common areas, it really is, would be unusual. Only the board would be, you know, allowed to make a decision to whether or not to allow a homeowner to decorate common areas. And I don't know if this is like for Valentine's Day or St. Patrick's Day or if this is something that's going to be up all year. Really, homeowners and residents shouldn't be doing that without board approval. So if somebody has done it and you know who they are, maybe send them, the board should send them a letter asking them to remove it. And requesting that anytime they do this in the future, that they would need to get prior written board approval. Next question is from John. How would you recommend the board go about addressing the issue with unhappy litigious homeowners? Okay, this probably could be a whole class. Um, but what I will tell you is that if you have unhappy litigious homeowners, do your best to communicate with them. Try to open up the lines of communication. See what they're upset about. See if you can help them in any way so that they feel more comfortable with how things are going in the association. Invite them to come to board meetings. Be transparent. Be nice. That's my best advice. Sometimes, even when you do all of those steps, they're still litigious and they're still unhappy. And in those cases, make sure you get your legal counsel involved to help you manage the problem. Because when you have unhappy litigious homeowners who aren't reasonable you typically do need to have legal involvement to help you manage the situation and to help you so that you don't get sued by them, you know, going forward. Next question is from Anonymous. What can an owner do if the board ballot includes a candidate that is not eligible to run because they are not the record owner? Uh, believe it or not, we see this often. So by mistake, somebody who's not on the deed is running for the board and there's a requirement that you know, all board members have to be record owners. So how do we handle that? We go to the um, non-owner and we say, can you be added to the deed? Um, in some cases, they're quickly added to the deed, like a 1% interest, and that would qualify under most bylaws to let them run for the board. In some situations, they can't be added to the deed. And in those cases, you know, if the board has time, the board should send out a notification to the membership that that person is no longer running. I wouldn't embarrass them. I would just say that they're no longer going to be a candidate. If it's too late to send out a notice like that, um, obviously, if that person gets enough ballot votes to be elected, they would not be elected. And the next highest vote getter would be elected to the board. 
are there board member term limits? Um, under Arizona law, no. Um, some association documents, very rare, have term limits, um, and that would typically be in the bylaws. But again, it's pretty rare. We don't see that very often. Do you have strategies for dealing with a CCNR 100% mortgagee written consent requirement when it comes to amendments? Or do you believe, as some do, that the state statute trumps the CCNRs when it comes to process? So I don't believe that the state statute trumps the CCNRs on that process, just as a starting point. And I do have a strategy for dealing with these mortgage mortgagee written consents. Um, if your association reaches out to our firm, we can help you with that process. There is a workaround loophole that we do and meets the requirement. We also amend that section out of your documents so that you don't have to deal with it in the future. So John, please reach out to us. We're happy to help you strategize on that. Number 35, anonymous. Do architectural guidelines created independently of the CCNRs need to be approved by the entire community? Typically, no. The only exception to that would be if the CCNRs require that, but I mean, that'd be very, very rare. Typically, the architectural guidelines are just approved by the board. Next question is from Crystal. Our HOA legal counsel is only allowed to be contacted by the president. The president is the one in question. She has been on the board for 18 years. We should have 250,000 and we only have 89,000. So I don't see a question there, but I, I would say this, that typically there are procedures for who can contact the HOA legal counsel. And sometimes it's the manager, sometimes it's the entire board, sometimes it's just the president, but homeowners are never allowed to contact the HOA legal counsel. Um, and talk to the legal counsel without board approval. One thing that you might want to do if you're really concerned about the funding in your association and the fact that you think there's missing money, which I think I'm reading between the lines, is you could write a letter to or an email to the association's legal counsel and make the counsel aware of the situation and ask them to look into it. And you can sign your name as a concerned homeowner. And I would also CC the board on that so that they don't think you're going around them. Next question is from David. What would be a normal fine amount for short-term rental violations? The normal fine amount would be whatever the short-term rental going rate is for a night. So if they're charging $300 a night, the fine should be $300. I think that's reasonable under the statute. Next question is from Jim. Are there any legislative actions in process to require reserve funding? As of right now, no. 39, Jill, can owners see a management company's contract? So this is kind of a loaded question. So my personal opinion as legal counsel for association is that association should give the management contract to any owner who wants to see it. Here's what the law says. The law says that we can redact how much we're paying the manager and their exhibit A, which typically outlines all their extra charges. So you know, if they want to follow the black letter of the law, the black letter of the law would say that if an owner wants to see a management company, the board has the option to redact how much the management company is being paid, but they'd have to provide the rest of the contract. But I, I think it's really not a good idea to do that. And here's why. Because the owners can see by looking in five other places how much the management company is being paid. They can look at the budget. They can look at the check register. They can look at the bank statement a number of different places they can look. So why would we play the game of redacting how much we're paying the management company? It just doesn't make sense to me. And I think it makes the board look like there's a lack of transparency. And so I recommend as legal counsel that you provide the contracts for all of your vendors to the owners if they want to see them. I mean, it's, it's not that often that they do, but 
If they want to see them, they're entitled to see them. Next question is from Paula. Can you explain again problems with the email exchange with all board members? Okay, so sorry I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be on that. Okay, so Paula, here's how email exchange you know, works with board members. Please do not discuss association business via email. Please do not vote on association business via email. Okay, the only exception to that is when there's an emergency and you can't wait 48 hours to notice a regular board meeting. Um, and in that case, remember, you have to keep all the emails showing what the decision was and why this was an executive session, you know, emergency, um, excuse me, why this was an emergency, not an executive session um, exchange that needed to be conducted and what the actual votes were. Okay, so what the problem is, is that sometimes boards hit reply all, like maybe the manager says, sends an email that says, here are three tree trimming contracts. And they send it to everybody on the board. That email is okay. What's not okay is if one of the board members hits reply all and replies to a majority of the board, I vote in favor of number two. And then everybody else starts chiming in reply all, I vote in favor of number two, too. You've just discussed and voted on email. It's not an emergency situation. And that type of discussion needs to be done during the open meetings. The law is, is really clear on it and it's evolved over the past you know, 24 years that I've been practicing in this area. It's very clear that the legislature intends that all association business is conducted in the open board meeting unless it's a subject that's in the executive session, you know, topics that they can go into executive session for. And email is something that boards trip up on. So just be really careful that you're not making decisions or discussing things with the quorum of the board anytime by email, unless it's an emergency circumstance. Okay, next question. Is if a reserve fund is a best practice and not required, what is an adequate funding percentage that you would recommend? Okay, so a reserve fund is best practices, of course, to have reserve, which is going to be, you know, a, a, an account, savings account for, you know, long-term planning for your association's assets. What's an adequate funding percentage? I don't know. For your association, every association is different. The best way to find that out is to hire a reserve company to come to your association and provide a reserve study. And that will tell you exactly how much needs to be in your reserve and you know what an adequate funding percentage is. So on some reserve studies, they'll say like, if you're funded between... 50 and under percent, um, you're in a danger zone. If you're funded between 50 and 70%, you're in an adequate zone. If you're funded 80% to 100, you're, you know, adequately funded, you know, and you're in good shape. So really, it just depends. I mean, kind of the rule of thumb would be if you have like 70 or 80% funded from a reserve study, you're in good shape. Okay, anonymous. With the Open Meetings Act in mind, should the board limit the amount of board members that can be on a single committee? One thing I haven't mentioned that it's just kind of been bothering me that I haven't brought up in this call um, is that remember that the architectural committee needs to be chaired by a board member. So I want to make sure that that's clear. And I guess the question here is, when you have an open meeting law, if you have a quorum of the board serving on a committee, could that be considered a board meeting? Yes, it could. So you should always have less than a quorum serving on a 
committee. Sometimes we have associations where the committee meets and several board members show up. So, and now they have a quorum because they've got maybe two people on the committee that are board members and then another board member shows up as an attendee. Just be mindful that the attendee, whoever the person is that's making the number to be a quorum, they shouldn't be commenting. If they're present, they're just present there. They shouldn't be commenting or voting on anything. And that will be a way to you know, be in compliance with the open meeting law that pertains to board members. Next question. If email is inappropriate and or illegal for board business, I guess that text messages are even more discouraged. Can I safely discourage my fellow board members from conducting business via text and point them to the next regular meeting or at the very least email if there's an emergency? I, I would say this is from owner. I agree with you. You shouldn't be texting association business um, you know, to get around the open meeting law. So a good suggestion, like you said, is to point them to the next regular meeting just because we don't want to violate the open meeting law. Uh, the next question is from Karen. If the association has a social event and all the board members, let's see here, and all the board members attend, how does this, how does the notice affect this situation? If, as long as the board's not discussing association business at the social event, uh, you know, quorum of the board discussing association business at the social event, they don't have to notice it as a board meeting. And it wouldn't be considered a board meeting because they're there in their personal capacity and they're not discussing association business. Okay, next question is from John. Could relaxing enforcement on items such as flags result in issues with inconsistent application of restrictions? Possibly, but unlikely. Other people might say, well, can I have my flower flag because there's this, you know, rainbow flag here? Possibly, you know, you may have to relax it for other flags, but it wouldn't the relaxed enforcement on like a Black Lives Matter flag, in my opinion, wouldn't result in, you know, an argument that the CCNRs are invalid or anything like that. So next question is from Harris. Please, can you come out with the most common areas which, which could upgrade the community value? For example, build the community gate, the fitness area. Honestly, Harris, I'm probably not the person that's the best person to comment on that. Here's a couple of things I can say from a legal perspective is if you want to upgrade your community value, and I'm not just talking about dollars, but I'm just talking about like the health of your association, have a strong management company, a good management company that acts at the direction of the board and the board should be professional and following the law and you know have a legal counsel that is well-versed in this area of the law and that is looking out for the best interests of the association stay out of lawsuits, try not to get involved in lawsuits, make sure your reserve fund is adequately funded, stay within your budget. Take a look at our successful associations cheat sheet, how to have a successful association. It's listed on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com. And that can give you some tips on how to have a successful association. Now, if you want to talk about how do we get more dollars in the door for our um, association value, property values, talk with a realtor because there is some argument that if you have a community gate or a fitness area that's, you know, more high tech and up to speed with what, you know, younger residents want. It may increase your property values, but I'm not the person for that. That would probably be a realtor that sells a lot of properties in your area. Okay. Is an HOA allowed to change its fiscal year? Only if you amend your documents to change it. Um, you also should be consulting with your CPA in that case. Thought federal law only covers service animals, not emotional support animals. 
know that the Fair Housing Act also covers emotional support animals, I encourage you to check out our cheat sheet entitled Federal Laws on our webpage at MulcahyLawFirm.com. We're just going to have to finish up with a few questions. I think I have three more uh, because I have to go to a board meeting here in about eight minutes. So the last three questions are, how do we handle a renter in our community who parks six or seven cars, trailer, and a house full of junk furniture? It's like a hoarder's home. Honestly, I think the best way to handle that person would be to have your attorney contact the owner and make it hurt in the owner's pocket by finding the owner, possibly escalating this to litigation. Um, you're welcome to reach out to our firm to help you with that problem if you need help. We've successfully dealt with many hoarders in the past. Last two questions, Dolores, what recourse is there if the board has conclusively stated they will allow a particular visual violation to the CCNRs or architectural guidelines on one property, while also saying the neighbor's complaint is valid per the CCNR architectural guidelines, but that they, the board, will still allow the violation to stand? And the complaint not to say anything further about it. And if they do, they're proven to be considered as a troublemaking gadfly. Okay. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So this is kind of a long question. I think probably we would need to talk about this offline. So if you if you want to talk a little bit about this with me, you're welcome to contact our office. It's kind of hard to comment on it because it sounds like there's a lot of backstory on that one. Last question. I am a homeowner, former condo board member in an association still controlled by the builder. Okay, so this might be the one that was similar to the first one. Is it hard to get any information or response from the property manager? Only one meeting a year is required at this point. Any advice? So what I would say is since you're under developer control, I would find out who the management company is and I would send a records request to the management company. They will know that they're required by law to follow the, the records, providing records to you under the, the records law that says that owners can see records. I would also reach out and look on the Arizona Corporation Commission's website, find out the names of the directors that are currently serving under your developer controlled board, and also send them a letter asking them for information and uh, letting them know that you wish that they would be meeting more than once a year um, for their annual meeting and see if you can get a response. Okay, just some concluding remarks. We got through, if you can believe it, 51 questions. That's pretty good. 51 questions in 50 minutes. How about that? Concluding remarks for today. Uh, don't forget that our third class for the spring 2021 virtual HOA Condo Academy is on Tuesday, March 16th at 11 a.m. Our topic for the next month will be the ABCs of enforcement, which I think we can all agree. We had a lot of questions on how do we handle violations and enforcement in our community. And we're going to be talking about violations, fines, lawsuits, rental issues, parking problems, refusal of owners to pay assessments, and a lot of different um, topics. So we hope you'll be joining us um, on March 16th, the day before my favorite day of the year, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Um, and we're going to be at the same time, 11 a.m. And uh, we're going to be conducting the class again via Zoom and also via Facebook Live. So thank you so much for being here with us today. We appreciate you caring about your communities and wanting to learn more about the law regarding HOAs and condos. And I'd especially like to thank the different cities that are partnering with us here today to make these classes possible. And that would be the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. Um, we appreciate the opportunity to partner with these cities, and we really have positive things to say about these cities because they are care about their homeowners. They want to have good associations, 
and they want to provide useful information to their homeowners, board members, and management companies during this pandemic time. So thanks everybody for being with us here today. I hope you have a great rest of the month and I look forward to seeing you next month for our third class in the virtual HOA Academy series. Take care, everybody. Be safe. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.